Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. This is the interview of the day on the shock and awe of the short-term paper market six months in. It is arcane, it's complex, and you've got to read the 14,000 pages of Steigums written by Tony Crescenzi to understand a little bit of it. We don't have the time to do that, so we'll talk to him instead. Crescenzi of Pinto now on where we are. Tony, there are two groups. The Fed is organized, the Fed is providing stability, and the overnight market surge we've seen in repo is no big deal. There's another camp that says baloney, the world's falling apart. Which is it? Bring the chart up, Brad, for TV and on radio. All you need to know, it's a spike like you've never seen. Think about Jeff Bezos going up in space. That's what the spike looks like. Tony, what's it mean? Well, uh, it's as if the Fed wrote its recent framework on disappearing ink to some, uh, because the Fed's new framework, released last August 27th, said that it wouldn't raise its policy rate until the inflation rate had gone above its 2% target for some time. Uh, it hasn't really done that for some time, and so hence the idea of uh, disappearing ink. Uh, this is a spike we're seeing in rates, of course, relates to the, the Fed's uh, communication. And I should add that uh, Ben Bernanke, who's an advisor to PIMCO, has famously said that Fed policy is 2% action, 98% communication. It goes to show how, how strongly uh, markets uh, take the words of the Federal Reserve, and certainly um, they were taken very strongly. So, so the rising rates, uh, to, just to sum up, uh, I would say that um, it, it's as if the Fed has uh, put the inflation cop back on the beat. It wanted to regain control of the inflation narrative uh, because the public's hype over inflation had gotten too high. The Fed got spooked. Uh, that's what it okay. says. And, uh, it'll probably be good. Final words, Tom, on this um, It'll probably be good for the equity market, for the credit markets, private investments, including real estate, because it looks like it will uh, rein in inflation fears. Right. Uh, but it may, the Fed may. Okay, it's a but Tony, far. this is really important. If Crescenzi's telling me the Fed got spooked, that's really, really uh, important. What about the responsiveness, the malleability, the dynamics, the elasticity of trillions of dollars? I don't understand the theoretical model of what that money does that came from this pandemic. Well, we see $750 billion of it in a Fed uh, repo facility. There's still a lot of money sloshing around, and it's the reason why the Federal Reserve raised uh, a few official policy—I uh, should say technical policy rates that it, it tracks. It has Its official policy rate, of course, is around zero, but it does things to tweak uh, behavior in the money markets, and last week it raised— two specific rates by five basis points because so there's so much money floating around that it was putting downward pressure on money market rates, call it commercial paper, et cetera, and, and three-month LIBOR, which reached an all-time low of 13 basis points last week. And so there's still that money still is out there, so to speak, and it won't be removed for a long time. Remember, the Fed is still purchasing $120 billion of new securities per month. In other words, it's printing another $120 billion of money each yeah. month. It'll do so into next year, and it won't shrink its balance sheet for a while. Why? Because it's going to reinvest the principal and interest payments it gets on the mortgages it has and the treasuries okay, but, it has. But, and 
Lisa, I don't mean to interrupt Tony, but this is so damn important. Lisa, what's so important, and Mr. Cosenzi just said, is that phrase for a very long time. I mean, that's really what the market's arguing about. Yeah, the, the issue here is that people are trying to extrapolate forward what the trillions of dollars in excess cash sloshing around that clearly banks and the Fed are struggling to know how to handle what the ramifications for this will be. Zoltan Pozar of Credit Suisse writing in a recent note that by paying trillions in reserves uh, five basis points, the Fed just planted the seeds of the next liquidity crisis. Tony, do you agree? Uh, no. Uh, for one, uh, markets understand the, the Federal Reserve's reaction function, which is that if there were a liquidity problem, that the Federal Reserve would stand up and inject additional liquidity. This is something we learned after the GFC, the global financial crisis. There were some doubts about whether the Fed would stick to it in 2013 when there was a so-called taper tantrum, when there's a fear like now that the Fed might remove uh, its monetary accommodation. That fear subsided over the years and look today. Federal Reserve has communicated uh, an idea that the markets didn't uh, believe in previously, yet the reaction was not much of a reaction. It's, it's rather tame. Uh, you're not seeing meaningful movement in global markets from this, i.e. Uh, downward movement in equities, credit, and or jump in interest rates. And so it's a rather benign uh, notion related to the, the reaction function, no idea. Uh, so this, this notion that there isn't enough Liquidity, the liquidity crunch is uh, uh, not not uh, happening in my idea. One, one quick notion, though, to, to think about is the idea of chaos in periods when uh, credit cycles end. After 2008, 2020, we all saw that um, credit instruments did not trade well. This relates to uh, the breakdown of the so-called principal agent model, right. which is that there are so many debt securities in existence uh, that when the investors go to sell, that the system can't handle those securities uh, because there is no intermediary to, to, to bid for them. Yeah. So that's where there's a liquidity crunch in financial markets, in debt securities, uh, because of the, the problems uh, in the broker, the, the principal agent model. And Tony, that sort of speaks to the so-called uh, so taper tantrum type model, particularly in credit, because it isn't traded in the same kind of way as uh, full faith in credit, uh, government debt of the United States. Here we are, though, with two-year yields moving. And as a number of analysts noted, people expressing the hawkishness heard by a number of the Fed members in markets, but not, as you point out, in credit. We are not seeing the stress in risk assets. How do you make sense of this? Well, uh, first, I thought the first thing that came to my head when you said that is um, corporate profit story, cash flow. What investors care about, bond investors, equity investors, is cash flow. A bond investor cares about getting his or her or its money back. Uh, and the earnings story is quite good. In fact, uh, we think the, the uh, equity that investors should be overweight equities today, overweight credit. Uh, this, the story in equities is that the earnings uh, will grow near 30 percent this year and most project, we would project as well, that earnings will grow 10% next year, 10% the year after that. The Federal Reserve's uh, communication, if anything, will uh, elongate the economic expansion by team, uh, tapering, I, sh I should say, uh, bringing down inflation expectations, inflation fears, the type that might have truncated the, um, the economic expansion. And so it, the story is looking good. And again, I, mentioned, I refer back to the notion of the Fed's reaction function. Uh, most believe that uh, the Federal Reserve would step in uh, and take action if, in fact, uh, the markets got into trouble.
Tony, I wonder about the um, renewed, as Ven Rom calls it on the MLive blog. Uh, hey, hey, Tony, good to talk to you. He, he says there's a renewed quest for duration, and I wonder if that just points to market expectations of real volatility coming back in rates. Well, looking out several years in, into so-called forward rates, one sees that, uh, and even out five years, that the market consensus is that interest rates across the yield curve will be in the low twos. In fact, that's down 20 basis points in the past week or so. Uh, we would say that the 60-40 uh, model is alive and well. Returns have been quite good this year, call it 7-8% or so. Uh, we still believe in the hedge value of high-quality fixed income instruments. And I said earlier that we prefer to be overweight credit, overweight equities, overweight private assets, including real estate. Uh, but that's not a very balanced portfolio. Uh, we would say then that to the, the way to balance that is, of course, uh, through uh, the use of duration, uh, having fixed income uh, in a portfolio. Because in, in the long run, uh, adverse uh, scenarios will affect uh, treasuries in a way that benefits a portfolio, uh, while the other instruments uh, don't uh, fare so well. So, so we believe in the hedge value of, of treasuries and, and the 60-40 model. Still, 60-40 model is still big believers in. That's a shock. To, you know, I was I've been terrified to check my IRA over the last couple of years as we continue to hear that the 60-40 model is dead and gone. Why was that, and and how come you think it's it's healthy and surviving? Well, thinking first of the returns for the year, which are quite uh, respectable, uh, call it seven, eight percent or so, is, is a fair return. And uh, it's very difficult to surmise that in a quite adverse scenario that longer-term treasuries, and, and this has been demonstrated in the past week, would not fare well in an adverse scenario. So last week, uh, a microcosm, perhaps, when the Dow Jones Industrial Average was falling 500 points, longer-term treasury yields were falling. Uh, and this is the sort of behavior we would expect in other adverse scenarios, and they could be prompted by numerous things that are difficult to predict. Um, but we do believe that investors would move in that way. I should add, finally, that um, the reach for duration is a global um, story, and this is obvious in Germany, where yields, where you are, uh, where yields are still in negative territory, and also in Japan, of course, where they're near zero. Mm -hmm. All the way out so to the, 30 the, years, practically. Correct. Yeah. And so the, the reach for duration, the need for it is still high. And I should, the final, final note is in 60-40 models, because of the performance of equities, if anything, there's likely to be some adjustments by large pension funds and other investors following it uh, into fixed mm -hmm. income, uh, especially um, given some of the right. volatility of the Tony, got to leave it there. Tony Kutanzi, thank you so much. With Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, uh, everyone. This morning. Right now, all of this market action dovetails into the banks. There has never been a crisis like this in the career of Gerard Cassidy. He's with RBC Capital Markets and joins us right now. He has seen this before, angst and hand-wringing. What does all this uproar, Jerry, mean for the big banks? Tom, you're right. We've been through a number of different cycles, and each one has a different uh, side to it. But this one is quite interesting because we've not seen this low rate environment persist for so long, particularly on the long end of the curve, with the likelihood of inflation heating up to levels possibly we haven't seen in over 25 years. So the industry right now 
is grappling with an excess amount of liquidity caused by the quantitative easing by the Federal Reserve. As you know, right. Tom, their balance, <clears throat> the Fed's balance sheet now is over $8 trillion. And that's up from $4 trillion prior to the pandemic. And that's gone into the banking system, which is weighing on their margins along with this rate environment. You know, I, I looked, Gerard, and we were talking about $34 lobster rolls because we were coming on with Gerard Cassidy of Portland, Maine. And I guess the question is when you see a pullback in J.P. Morgan of 11% or other selected Cassidy stocks, is it time for Gerard Cassidy to load the lobster boat? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it is, Tom. In fact, this pullback is a great opportunity for investors to buy bank stocks, whether it's J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank America or any of the large regionals like a PNC or Truist. And, and you're right, Tom, if you believe that the U.S. economy is truly growing at six or seven percent and throw in three or four percent for inflation, loan growth, historically, Tom, going back to the 1940s, is correlated to nominal GDP growth. And, the, and loan growth hasn't shown up yet because of the liquidity of corporates and consumers. But over the next 12 months, we do expect to see loan growth with the growth in the economy the way you it's know, projected you, today. And Lisa, this is so important. I, you know, a grizzled pro like Cassidy, who remembers when a lobster roll was $3.40. Um, <laughs> and, and Lisa, I'm sorry. The fact of the matter is he's looking out 12 months, not 12 hours. Tom, I love that your priority right now is a lobster roll. I am right there with you, Gerard, talking about the liquidity beyond uh, perhaps the beverage of your choice to accompany a lobster yeah. roll, but rather the liquidity in the financial system. You talk about extending loans, the idea that there's $3.9 trillion of cash uh, of reserves at the Federal Reserve versus pre-financial crisis of $46 billion on average, a complete magnitude change. What is the trajectory of getting that money into lending at the same time that people are drawing down their deposits and actually spending that cash, perhaps taking that cash out of the banks and into the economy. No, that is the key metric. And it's you're very observant on the numbers. And I would suggest that that's what the banks want to do. The banks, as I try to remind myself and investors, banks are in the business to lend money. They want to lend money to qualified borrowers. And, and right now, the demand's not there. But as the liquidity is used up, and remember, the consumer has a number of benefits that are expiring in the fall. For example, if you're a student and you're deferred your loan payments, that expires in the fall. So I think you're going to find people are going to use up their stimulus payments to help with their monthly cash flows and then re revolve back onto credit cards, which we're starting to actually see. So maybe they are buying those lobster rolls, Tom, for $34. <laughs> maybe people are buying lobster rolls. I wonder if companies are going to start buying other companies because, yes, the consumer balance sheet's looking pretty healthy, but companies have a lot of cash on hand as well. And Jamie Dimon last week in talking about the fact that, okay, yeah, trading isn't going to be as great, look to M&A as a driver. How much of a growth catalyst do you think M&A will be for these banks? You know, that's a real good question. And I think it will be a real driver because as corporates become more confident that the U.S. economy is out of the, the downturn that we experienced last year due to the, the pandemic, they will have more confidence to either build new plant or equipment or go out and buy a competitor to become more efficient. So we do see that as being one of the accelerants to loan growth along with regular corporate loan demand. You know, the building of all the new um, green initiatives, whether it's electric vehicles and other things, those too are really demanding corporate uh, borrowing. And that too will pick up as, again, confidence comes back 
into this economy. Gerard, how much does your buy banks call get threatened by a flattening yield curve? As many people now <laughs> are looking at the consensus call as being that continuing. No, that, that is a risk. I, I don't disagree with you whatsoever. If we're chatting here a year from now and the 10-year government bond yield is 110 basis points or 120 basis points and there's more talk of the Fed raising yeah. shorting, that, that, is, <clears throat> that would be a very challenging yeah. bank stock environment. I don't disagree with yeah. you. Jerry, I don't care. Uh, what I care about, Gerard Cassidy, is a Connecticut or a Maine lobster roll. Are you going to go with a butter sauce? Or <laughs> in honor of your colleague in crime, are you going to go with a Mike Mayonnaise like a good Maine guy? Uh, you you got to go with the butter sauce, Tom, with a, really? nice, uh, IPA, with, with a nice IPA, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Butter sauce. I never thought, yes. I, Lisa, I'm absolutely shocked. Really? Yeah, that's butter like, sauce I, I just, is just figured superior. Cassidy was ice cold, Mike mayonnaise, and the whole thing. No, <laughs> butter sauce is, is far superior. Okay, thank you, yeah, Gerard you Cassidy. Go. Thank you. I learned something finally today on the show. Gerard Cassidy of RBC Capital Markets, truly expert. We didn't even have time there to go for his single best buy within the sell side. And Ben Emmons was booked. We said, yeah, okay, great. 7A slot. It's wonderful to have Ben Emmons with us on this Monday. And then things blew up on Friday. So this is a genius booking of Benjamin <laughs> Emmons and Menley Global Advisors with an important research note over the weekend. What'd you write? Yeah, Tom, I was looking at the dynamic of the of the curve on Friday, and it you know it speaks to that you get guidance actually through the dot plot, which was different in 2013 when the Fed actually didn't do that and yields jumped. And so the opposite effect then happens on the long end of the yield curve that says, okay, maybe these future rate hikes are sufficient to control inflation around that 2%. So the market is giving some credibility on that mm -hmm. front to the Fed. But there's also a lot of technicals at work, as you right. probably have talked about with Tony. You know, this positioning that took place prior to all this flattening that we're seeing was really predicated on that markets okay, were expecting a growth is, this is, Folks, this is what we do. When we invented surveillance, this was a couple months ago. When we invented surveillance, we said what we want to do is get a short-term guy like Crescenzi on the show and then get a long-term guy like Emmons as well. Parachute into Crescenzi's market. Long-term people like you and, frankly, Jerome Powell, what do they think of trillions of dollars in the Crescenzi space, overnight repo, and the rest of it? So it's not only substantial, but it will continue to compress short-term interest rates over time. As much as you want to communicate that you're going to raise rates, you cannot really expect this two-year yield to jump all the way out to this projected rate that the Fed has put out. I think it's more like a very slow normalization and markets are, are no, uh, know this, actually, because we've experienced this in 2014, too, when we went really slowly with the two yields over time. I think that's what you can expect. Um, whereas on the long end of the yield curve, it's this dynamic, I think, of the technical positioning and the fact that, you know, maybe these rate hikes are sufficient to keep inflation in the future under control. All right. So if it is technical, are we almost through with the technicality, Ben? Are we moving into a period where perhaps long ends, long end rates can possibly rise on the prospect of less Fed accommodation? I think, Lisa, that the rates communicated this time compared to 2013 is that, you know, we were missing guidance on rates in 2013. And if we have this idea now that, OK, it's going to go that trajectory, you take out some of that risk premium out of the long end. At the same time, 
to your point, probably there's some scope for rising long-term rates as new data comes in and surprises still to the upside. We know, let's face it, we have an economy that's really strong. It's not normal to have rates at these low levels. Um, it's, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it looks like dislocated. So I would think the next payroll report, even the core PCE data comes out this week, surprises to the upside, probably a catalyst for rates to somewhat normalize again back to inside the race where we came from. Ben, did we already get the taper tantrum? Was that what March was? Maybe, Kaylee, but, um, you know, there's this definition about this taper tantrum. At, in 2013, it was really a communication uh, that confused markets and led to this repositioning on, okay, we didn't really expect you to go this fast with ending QE and then moving to rate hacks maybe in the future. So in that respect, the Fed, I think, has done a really good job controlling that aspect but I think what the markets were not expecting last week was to see this dot plot shift. And I think what really happened on Friday was just completely recalibrating what we saw in March, where you know the, the expectations for rate hikes were the same as they are now today, with now the difference that the markets understand what the Fed is potentially planning to do, including you know, working towards this, uh, this start of the tapering process. Well, Ben, uh, to Kaylee's point, though, isn't it surprising that you're not seeing a bigger wobble in risk assets, given the fact that people are starting to think about tapering sooner? I think there's two, two things going on, Lisa, because, yes, tapering means, you know, removal of accommodation over time. But we also have to <clears throat> discount the fact that the Fed is still super accommodative. Right? We will continue to buy $120 billion a month which, by the way, larger than in 20, uh, 2013, when it was like 85 billion or so. So we're going to continue on that pace for at least a number of months, if not longer, until that tapering actually happens, maybe presumably in 2022. So you're looking at a balance sheet that's going to extend okay. beyond $9 trillion. What Very quickly here, we're out of time, Ben, but very quickly here, what do you need to hear from Fed officials in the coming days, including today? I think you want to hear that what they've put out as, as projections is a what we call a bullish forecast. They're looking at the economy will be protected here against this surge of inflation. Mm -hmm. And this forecast that they put out on the dot plot has always been considered to be an individual, that that's re-emphasized, right? They are still at the, at the starting phase of considering future normalization. Ben Amos, thank you so much with Medley Global Advisors. Jane Foley joins from Rabobank. She's been dead on, and what's so important, folks, is her price targets are moving. I mean, the idea of you get a price target and a cup of coffee later, you're halfway there. What do you do with your movable feast of FX targets? Jane, how ugly has this been, and how do you adapt and adjust at Rabobank on a Monday morning? Well, to be honest, uh, you know, my, my one-month target at the end of last, well, in the middle of last week was at, was at 120. I haven't changed that yet because we could have a little bit of price adjustment, but I do think that the dollar is going to remain strong, certainly into uh, the rest of this year and certainly this summer. I mean, there had already been a lot of focus on Jackson Hole. Maybe that was going to be the meeting where the Fed became, you know, more hawkish. But I think what we saw last Thursday clearly really uh, surprised the market. And what we're seeing now is a huge amount of dollar positioning just being squeezed out here. Well, the dollar position has been squeezed out. I got a little static on the line. We're going to keep going with Jane Foley, see if we can uh, get that. That's it. You know, Kaylee, that's what happens when the mice eat the wires. Uh, over hate the it weekend. when that happens. We leave 731 Lexington and the mice come in and like, <laughs> work in the wires as well. 
Jane, you know, I look at the Pacific Rim play just as something that we haven't talked about today away from the majors. And there's just been this, you know, idea of better economy, Pacific Rim excellence. If I get a strong dollar, I can't get Pacific Rim currency strength, which wins out. Well, I think in the short term, it's got to be the dollar. But, you know, what the Fed has done last week does potentially allow other central banks to put a different slant on their policy. So, for instance, if we consider, you know, the RBA, the RBNZ, those economies have been pretty good. They didn't really die that much last year compared with other G10 economies. They've had really strong uh, rebounds. Um, and, and yet the central banks, or particularly the RBA, has remained um, pretty dovish, not so much the RBNZ. But you could argue that now that the dollar is strengthened and their currencies have come off, that this could really open the door for other central banks to be a little bit more hawkish too. Now, you could potentially apply that same sort of logic, maybe even to the Bank of England, maybe even to the ECB. To what extent does this open the, the way for other central banks to, 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 mm. to subtly change their tone? Now, we're not necessarily expecting the shocks that, you've, that we've seen from the Fed. I mean, look at the, the yield curves in the UK and look at the yield curves in, in, in <coughs> Europe and Germany compared with uh, the, the US over the last few days. We haven't seen that much movement. But, you know, it could mean that we will see more central banks being brave enough to come out and being a little bit more hawkish because they don't need to fear that their exchange rate is, is going to start uh, zooming higher. Well, and that's on the developed central bank side, right, Jane? And when you look at emerging markets, the Bloomberg or the MSCI EMFX index right now hovering around its lowest level in a month, obviously, uh, on the losing end of that dollar strength equation. And we know that emerging market central banks have been raising rates. They have been tightening policy. They are trying to combat rampant inflation when you look at the likes of Brazil and Turkey. Are they going to be able to provide enough support to their currencies? Well, you know, I think at some point we've got to look at various different emerging markets, you know, in, in their own, given their own fundamental capacity rather than look at the, the group as a whole because some are better positioned than others. But clearly, you know, in, in terms of there being a stronger dollar, in terms of there being a Fed who's a little bit more hawkish than, than, than it was before, that is clearly bad news for the whole of the EM. But we still got to remember that, you know, the, the Fed is still being accommodative at this point. It's just a little less accommodative than before, but still accommodative. So from that point of view, there will be still value in some emerging markets. But it, it will be the investors that are able to, you know, pull apart the different uh, EM countries and, and, and look for the ones that can still offer value. Jane, of course, we're getting the Bank of England decision later on this week. And right now I'm looking at a cable rate, 138 or so. It is the, uh, the pound is the strongest performer in the G10 space today. What is your base case for the pound? Well, you know, we have seen, obviously, sterling come back against the U.S. dollar in the last couple of days. That's not the same sort of story that we're seeing in, in sterling against the euro. It's been still really very range-bound. And although it's, it's, it's moved a little bit, it's still towards the end of the, the, the lower end of, of its range. Now, the Bank of England, as you said, is clearly in focus, probably not going to be that much on offer. But I think the market's always expecting that uh, uh, Chief Economist Haldane, as he leaves the bank this month, will come out with some hawkish parting mm -hmm. remarks. So I think the market's position positioning for that. But I think there isn't going to be any particular surprises over the summer. But later in the year, we could have a little bit more taping from, from the Bank of England. So we need to watch out for that. But that assumes, of course, that the uh, the slowdown and reopening the, the economy in England um, mm -hmm. 
doesn't impact confidence uh, too much that we still carry on uh, and see some see the, 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 the remaining reopening of the economy take place in July. Jane Foley, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it on a tumultuous uh, day. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.